I'd like to ask for a moment of silence first for the recoveries we have been privileged to witness over the years. The Al-Anon family groups are a fellowship of relatives and friends of alcoholics who share their experience, strength, and hope in order to solve their common problem of living with an alcoholic and to help others do the same. We believe alcoholism is an illness which can be arrested and that changed family attitudes can often aid recovery. The only requirement for membership is that there be a relative or a friend with a drinking problem. There are no dues for membership. Al-Anon is self-supporting through its own voluntary contributions. Al-Anon is not allied with any sect, denomination, political entity, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses or opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to practice the Al-Anon program so that we may help others with similar problems, aid the alcoholics through understanding, and to grow spiritually ourselves. There may be some who are not familiar with our tradition of personal anonymity at the public level. If so, we respectfully ask that no AA speaker or Al-Anon member be identified by full name or picture in published or broadcast reports of our meeting. The assurance of anonymity is essential to our efforts to help others and our tradition of anonymity reminds us that principles come before personalities. Um, there are a few announcements. Tomorrow at 5 p.m. July 4th, we're going to have a reception for Lois and the WSO members, and that will be held at the Eden um, at this hotel, the Eden Rock Cotillion Room, right here on the main floor. There will be a splash party for Alateens at 8 p.m. tomorrow night, right here at the Eden Rock Hotel. Sunday morning, we're having a breakfast with Bill and Lois, and this begins at 8 o'clock till 9.30, and that's at the Fountain Blow and the Grand Ballroom. I ask you to please pay particular note to the starting time, 8 o'clock, or some of the tickets went out with the 8.30 time, and that's not correct. I have a special announcement here. There will be a luncheon tomorrow at the Barcelona Hotel for all those participating now or who had actively taken part in an Al-Anon intergroup or central office. If you are interested in attending, please contact Betty Moran at the Barcelona Hotel, and she'll make the reservation for you. Uh, excuse me, about the breakfast tickets. They, I understand they're still on sale in the lobby out here after the meeting. You can inquire about them. Al-Anon has proudly introduced a new book entitled Al-Anon's Favorite Forum Editorials, and that, too, is on sale in the lobby. Uh, they will be sold each day until 6 p.m. and in the evenings, Friday and Saturday night, at Convention Hall. The price is $5.
No tape recorders are... Hello everyone, my name is Marge and I'm from New York City. I am the recovering wife of a recovering alcoholic. <laughs> you can appreciate that. Today we will hear from a family team from Warren, Michigan. Shirley H. of AA, Jim H. of Al-Anon, and their daughter Catherine from Alateen. We're also privileged to have a professional, Barry Leach from New York City. They will tell us how AA, Al-Anon, Al-Ateen, and a professional have built a bridge of understanding because they know, as we do, the value of working together to recover, which is the theme of this panel. Now, they have much to tell you, and I will not waste any more time, so won't you please give a warm welcome to our first speaker, Jim from Al-Anon. All I can say right now is, wow, how did I get into this mess? Uh, what I'm about to say up here are my own opinions and not necessarily those of the management. Isn't that right, dear? <laughs> My name is James H., and uh, since this program is anonymous, I will try to keep my name out of this uh, talk. However, I would uh, like to say that as long as Al-Anon has me, it has a hope. Whoops, I slipped. <laughs> Uh, I am a member of a threefold family disease, AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen. And uh, since I'm a little bit too old for Alateen, and my wife calls me a party pooper, and uh, her definition of a party pooper is one who can leave a party while they're still serving drinks. <laughs> so that uh, means that lets me out of AA, so I guess I'm in Al-Anon. Right now, I don't know. I need a, uh, right now I wish I could say, let's all close this meeting and have a closed meeting instead of this open, and I think that would be fine. Uh, I am very grateful to be a member of Al-Anon and privileged and honored to be a, a member of this panel. I will try to, to the best of my ability, to carry the, the message of my personal recovery. To do, to do this, I first must qualify I, like my alcoholic, came to know the suffering of the disease of alcoholism. While my wife was drinking, I be began to know how to hate, to love, to cry, not out loud, but deep inside. <clears throat> and I, formed, uh, I could form resentments, self-pity. I began, I learned a, quite a good, big language from my wife. When she, uh, when she got drunk, she used to use some language, and I used to, I learned it all from her. 
And you also know I used to lie. <laughs> I also cheated. And uh, I used to do some dishonest things, you know, uh, when you're looking for beer bottle caps or alcoholic ca alcohol beverage caps. Uh, I never I never looked for pop caps because I could never find any. But alcohol caps I could find. And my wife would say, what are you looking for? Well, you know me. I'm looking for my hammer or my screwdriver. But uh, I think she wised up later on and found out differently. Ooh. I learned I learned to make uh, excuses for my al for my alcoholic alibis. I used to alibi for her very. Let me troubleshoot. Oops. <laughs> uh, so where was I? I used to uh, <laughs> to make excuses and alibi for my wife. I mean, when we go out to uh, to go out to a party, uh, nine times out of ten she'd be. Uh, three sheets to the wind before we even got started. And uh, half the time we used to have to stay home. I used to break her heart. Mine it didn't. Uh, I, also, uh, I also learned to be uh, a bloodhound and that was looking for the bottle caps. Uh, I could find one out in the street and I'd come in the house and search my house high and low for it. So you see I was uh, uh, in the insanity part was there, believe me. I, uh, I always, I'll tell you the truth, I was just as good at finding beer bottles as, or whiskey bottles as my wife was at hiding them. And that took some, that took some finding. My family made me, uh, or I ordained myself uh, in the uh, food and supper inspector. Oh, I'm sorry. It scares me. There. How's that? There. I also... Uh, where was I? Wait a minute, I'll get up here again. My family uh, and I, or I ordained myself the uh, supper, food and supper inspector. My job was to see if the food had or had not landed on the floor coming from the stove to the fridge. I like to explain that because my stove was lower the oven on my stove was lower than my top of my table. And when my wife was loaded, she couldn't make it to the table. It always on the floor. And uh, at that time, uh, when my wife was at this stage, stage of drinking, our floors were not too clean. And uh, we used to have to bend down. I used to get down there and look to make sure there was no dirt on the meat. I think my kids enjoyed that. Uh, I used to work myself into a frenzy, uh, worry, and uh, wondering if my wife uh, was sober or was if she was uh, drunk or otherwise. Sometimes, you know, when I come home, she would fool me and she'd be sober, but uh, I wouldn't take that. I, I would I would blame her. I, I'd stay say she was drunk no matter if she wasn't. And uh, I used to, uh, I usually gave her the rabbit kiss when I came home. You know, you take your big sniff, <laughs> and uh, sometimes she would booby trap me. She would put some uh, garlic, or she'd put some uh, 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 perfume and, and some onion salts. You know, it's try to camouflage the uh, 
the uh, smell of alcohol. I used to take one kiss in that and run right to the bathroom. Believe me, it was bad. But uh, I accidentally did this once when she was sober for about two years. And man, I thought I was going to get it. Whew. But uh, I, I, I didn't. Anyways, uh, we used to have a lot of arguments, both by word and by physical. Towards the end of her drinking, choice words and languages began to be thrown from both directions. Cups from her and knives and telephones. Now, can you imagine anybody like her missing me with a telephone? She did. Knives, she's missed me by. Cups, she's missed me by. But I think once she did hit me with a telephone on her way to the hospital. Boy, that was something. Right on top of the head. I think that's why I'm up here today. I'm a little bit off. <laughs> Both, uh, wait a minute, where is I here? Soon, you know, soon my, the police would start coming to our door. I mean, I don't know whether I called them, my wife called them, my daughter called them, or my son called them, but... I, f I began to feel like the police station was my next-door neighbor. Well, so much for the past, you can see that we were living a pretty mixed-up way. My wife finally decided that she was having some kind of problem with alcohol, and that maybe she was an alcoholic. She talked to the doctor about it, and then told me. I uh, she used to write big pages of letters, about 20 pages. And, I, you know, I'm having a hard time reading her writing as it was when I was overseas. So I still couldn't read it when she was uh, a little bit inebriated. After sitting and talking to two gals and one man in AA for a whole afternoon, we were anxious to go to our first AA meeting. Oops. After, uh, you see, we thought that we had found the answer to all our problems. In our ignorance and immaturity, we thought our only problem was my wife's drinking. I say thought, but of course I knew. I figured after my wife quit drinking, all our troubles and problems would be gone because, our, because after all, there was nothing wrong with me. So we went to our first meeting and we both enjoyed it. The girl speaking gave my wife's story and made quite a few things clear to me. I also heard for the first time about Al-Anon. This was in February of 1962. A few days later, I went to my first meeting. I certainly like what I've heard there for all they told me my wife had a disease and that was not, and I repeat, I was not responsible for my wife's drinking and this truly was music to my ears because she had just about convinced me that it was just all my fault. I also heard something else the first time and that was we can only live a day at a time, 24 hours. This was news to me, and I latched on to this fast. I went faith faithfully for about three months and did most, and like most men who came to us for the first time, decided that I didn't really have anything in common with these gals. Men in Al-Anon were and still are scarce. And besides, I decided that there was, was the little woman that was in AA. I decided that... The little woman was in AA and that she was cured, besides she had the problem, not me. If you don't mind, I'm going to start and read some of this, because it took me two weeks, and or almost two weeks to write this thing, and I hate to give it up. 
first came into this program, I said that I didn't have any character defects. My wife agreed. She said I didn't have any character. <laughs> also, I quit going to my meetings. I began going to open meetings with my wife to keep her going. I did go to these with an open mind, and I also learned something and certainly enjoyed them. Through a very close friend in the program, we made a conference in Toronto, Canada, and from then on became conference happy, and whenever we could afford when we went. One of these, through the grace of God, I finally met two male Al-Anons who were active in the program. I decided that they were going out, they were going out, wait a minute, I was, I discovered that they were getting out of the Al-Anon program what my wife was finding in AA. I decided that perhaps I was missing the boat someplace and decided I would go back to the meetings and see what I may have been doing wrong. I began to think in earnest of the open meetings I had attended and how the speakers were always talking about higher power and spiritual side of this program. This was what I had been missing, so I came back to my wonderful program with an open mind and an open heart. I came for me this time and not for my alcoholic. I finally began to see <coughs> that it was not so much my alcoholic that I had to understand and to know, but me. At last I discovered that I did not have some defects of character and the greatest thing of all I could identify. I now wanted to change and to recover from what was what I needed to, and I discovered after honestly trying to work the fourth step of our program that the program began to open up for me. It finally all made good sense to me. I found that by getting honest and asking for the help that was all there, I learned too that there was a few things I <coughs> was going to have to do and I wanted the miracle of recovery. The most important was to start to look at my own higher power, get honest with me, make more meetings for me, get active in the program for me, be willing to help others for me, because just as in AA program, you have to give it away to keep it. So it is in ours. So somewhere in the fall of 1965, I came back in earnest and started doing what I had learned and what was suggested to me. By following what I had learned, a tiny spark of faith started to grow in my mind and in my heart. Soon I was able to carry my higher power by his right name, which is God. I was finding for me what, <clears throat> that it was quite easy to pray. I learned to appreciate the 12 steps of Al-Anon and began working them with an open mind in regards to me and not to others. Here is a brief review, review of what the steps mean to me and, what I try to, and how I try to work them. Step one, admitted that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life was unmanageable. I was able to do this after my first meeting, by, but accepting was another matter. It, wasn't, it was not until after I turned my alcoholic over to the care of God as I now understand him, then and only then could I and God do something, to, could do anything about my stinking thinking and me and my life. I had to accept that my wife could not stay sober for me, that I could not change for her or my children, only me. I was my problem. Step two came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I came to real realize that some of my behavior was anything but normal. At times I behaved like a maniac. My temper, my temper was so bad I was in the program and my wife's sobriety came to, 
to us, I ask my God to remove my fears and mistrust and to help with our lives to improve our relationship. Step three, made a decision to turn my will over to the care of God as I understand him. This I was able to do, and I was able to turn my wife and my children's lives over to the care of God. I believe that he has taken good care of us because we are all here together today. This step, step has taught me to live one day at a time, and I have asked God for guidance for that day. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself. Today I can honestly take a good look at myself in the mirror. Today I like what I see. I have gotten rid of most of my fears and gotten rid of all my hates. I do not carry a resentment today. If I get into trouble today, I ask my higher power to help me make amends and ask for his forgiveness. I have no worries today, so you see, I did get rid of some of my de character defects. Step five, admitted to God and to myself and to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. Well, to myself and to my wife, I have done this. You see, I have no secrets from my wife. I uh, have honestly admitted most of this at our closed meetings and in talking to a new member. So, in, so he or she may be able to identify and we, he, he or she may be able to grasp this new way of life a little sooner than I. Some happiness a little sooner. I also take this step when giving a talk. I definitely feel and know that my actions during her bad time but during her bad time, my wife has forgiven me completely, just as I have completely forgiven her. There are no shadows between us now, only love. Step six and seven, I am entirely ready to have God remove all my deep pecks and humbly ask him to remove all my shortcomings. These two steps I work together. This is a willing step. In fact, steps two to twelve are willing steps. Today my higher power and I are working on this step. He has helped me to remove some of them. But since he does not expect me to be perfect, he has left me with a few, so that I still have to ask his help and guidance. Some of them I have had for a long time, and they are a bit hard to part with, but everything in God's own time. Step eight and nine made a list of all the persons I had harmed and became willing to make amends. When, to, when I could do so, except to do so would injure them or others. I try to work these two steps together too. I have not made a written list, but if I, if I did, I would put myself at the top of the list, then my wife and my family. I don't know truly of any others I have harmed because I managed to get all my creditors up to date. I tried to be there and be a good father. I gave all my employees a good day's work even when my mind and heart were disturbed. However, if there, if there is anyone to whom I should apologize, an opportunity presents itself, I shall be willing to do so. God will let me know the right time. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory and I was wrong, promptly admitted it. This I can do when I am wrong. I can say I am sorry a lot easier than before. And above all, the most important thing, mean it. There is a daily inventory step and therefore, pardon me, this is a daily inventory step and therefore very important to our daily growth and our growth in the program. This step is, if we, this step, if we keep honest with ourselves, helps us to grow and mentally mature. Get lots of time yet? Okay. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him. Today I can stop and pray or meditate. 
whenever I need help or when we are going fine, I oh wait a minute, that's something else. Or when things are going fine, I found this higher power or I or as I choose to say my God here in Al Anon. One that I can understand and talk to and believe in, have faith in, a loving, not punishing God. As I have grown to believe, I have not gone back to church yet, but someday I hope to. However, I am trying to do God's will for me, and his will for me is to live a decent, normal, sane life. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening, a result of these steps, I, carry, I try to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all my affairs. This is another willing step. You must be willing to carry this message. I know to be happy I must work these steps for the best of my ability and to set a good example as I may be the only message someone needing help may see or hear. So today, I know with God's help, the Al-Anon program, me and my life are straightening out. I am recovering. I find that being active in the program helps me, helps myself and helps myself and in it giving of myself that I receive. This truly is a new way of life. Today I use my Al-Anon in many ways. It, helped, it has helped me to accept my personal disease of, alcohol, of uh, diabetes. Diabetes. That's a big word too. I have also learned it to stop, I have also used it to stop smoking. A habit of 25 years. I stopped by accepting that I can't have the first puff of the, of the first cigarette just today. Maybe tomorrow, but not today. It has worked a day at a time for over three years. Today in our social life resolves around Al-Anon and AA. You see, we go out a lot. We love to go to meetings together, to anniversary conferences, this is where sobriety is, and sobriety is where our friends are, and our friends are people who participate in the, participate in the AA and Al-Anon. You see, we like to go to meetings together, so we, ha so we leave home together, go to our meetings. Whenever we, whenever, when we arrive, we each go to our individual group. After the meeting, we all chat together and then go home together. So in essence, we have been out together as husband and wife should be. In closing, I would like to say, you have heard the song, Love is Wonderful the Second Time Around. This I have found, and it is so true with my wife working AA and me working Al-Anon and my children working Alateen. We are triple A family. You have, a prob you have probably heard the expression that the family that prays together stays together. I would like to add that a family that has and is trying to work the AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen program stays happy and goes together. I thank my higher power for what we have today. We have a new home today where alcoholic, alcohol is a complete stranger, where love is present, and thanks to the grace of God, our marriage has survived over 28 years. We are the proud parents of three sons and three daughters. One of each is married, so that makes eight children. All are proud to be a part of our wonderful program, and the serenity prayer is our guide. Besides this, we have two beautiful grandsons. To top all of this off, Mama is still sober, and we have learned to live happy. I am grateful to and for my alcoholic wife, for she's with God with God help with God's help found us AA, which in turn found us Alanine. I feel that Al-Anon owes me nothing, but I 
I and God, I owe God and Al-Anon my right to live as a happy man. I thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Can you all hear? I see quite a few people standing up there. There are a number of empty seats down in front here, at least 12. Would you come down here and join us? Jim's story is a success story, as are all our stories if we follow this program. Alcoholism is a family disease, but many times the children are the forgotten members of the family. When we deny that the children are not affected, then we naturally deny them recovering. We choose our mates. The children do not choose their parents. It has been said that no one understands an alcoholic as well as another alcoholic. And no one understands what it is to live with an alcoholic unless you have lived with one. And so it is that no one understands what it is to be the child of an alcoholic unless you have been the child of an alcoholic. With this thought in mind, we will now hear from our beloved Alateen member, Catherine H. not Catherine. I just wanted to help her out. And it says on the program, it's K-A-T-H-R-Y-N. The real name is K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E. So, if you want to make corrections, you know. Um, my story is similar to my father's, only when my father emptied the bottle, I hid him from my mom so that, you know, we could be good friends. <laughs> um... I have been an LT member approximately two years. Um, now, this is when I came into LT and I, I came in straight, you know. Um, and I started LT when I was 12. But uh, when I started, there was only approximately, um, in fact, there was eight members at my first LT meeting, and this really was cool, you know. Uh, you can't hear? Oh, you know. How's that? Can everybody hear? Okay, good. Um, when I first started outing, there was eight members in the uh, group. There was three from our family and five from another family. <laughs> and so, what can you say? <laughs> but it was good, because when I was 12, you know, I wasn't a teenager, and these kids, you know, mo most of them were teenagers, and I thought, oh, cool, now I'm going to be a teenager, you know, I'm hanging around with teenagers. Um, so, uh, after a while, this group uh, was demolished, you know, there was no more kids left in it. And uh, so this was about four months later, no, it was about five years later, <laughs> uh, my father found another LT meeting for me. And uh, he goes, you want to go to an LT meeting? And I, I wasn't sure, you know, I was going, I don't know, I guess so. So I went, you know, and I expected about, you know, five or six kids. And I walked into the room, uh, and there was one member there. And that was the meeting, <laughs> me and one member. <laughs> So we didn't get much accomplished either because 
when I first came in Altina, I was real snob, and if people didn't look cute or if they weren't handsome, you know, and if they wore crummy clothes, I wouldn't talk to them. And uh, this this boy that was in Altina that was there, he was real fat and ugly, you know. <laughs> so I didn't talk to him very much, you know. Um, he offered me a chocolate milk, and I took it, and I sat on one side of the room, and he sat on the other side. So then uh, my father goes, uh, well, you want to go next week? I hear there's supposed to be lots of members here. And I go, okay. So the next week, I went to the meeting, and there was another person. So there was two of us. And um, she was a little older than me, and she was engaged now. And I, and I didn't know anything about Altine, you know, so I couldn't help her. So we watched television. <laughs> so I finally gave up. About three weeks of this, I go, this isn't any good. I'm not getting anything done. And so then I decided I won't go anymore. And then my father found another Elton meeting for me. <laughs> and I decided, oh, well, I don't know. Should I try it or not? Is it dangerous, you know? So I decided, okay, I'll try it. So I tried it. And I walked into the room, and there was a house full of kids, you know? Wow, I almost fell on the floor. And uh, I was really excited, you know, because there's a, you know, there a lot of kids. First time I went to a meeting, and they weren't all brothers and sisters. <laughs> and... Um, and uh, it was real good. Uh, I went in there, and uh, I was usually afraid to talk to people, you know. And uh, In fact, in seventh grade, our teacher says, okay, everyone's going to do a report, you know, and i got to do it out loud. And I go, oh, no, I can't do that. I can't talk in front of people. I cry. So I cried. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when I was melting, uh, my first meeting, I found the kids were cool, you know, and Gee, you know, and my mom and dad were both, my mom was sober, so I didn't need the first step, so I was already promoted to the second step. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? So, um, so then I go, well, I'll stay at the first step, because I know a lot about the first step. I know it's a disease, you know, and I just talk all night, you know. These kids were cool, you know, they wouldn't laugh at me. So for the, f about the first four months, I stayed at the first step. I was scared to try the second step, because I didn't know it, you know. And um, finally, about five or six months later, I decided, I better go on another step. You know, I'm getting an expert at this step. And uh, I tried the second step, and I found that, you know, there's a higher power. And this is great, you know. Um, I always prayed to God. And the reason I prayed to God, because if I didn't pray to him, I was afraid he was going to take one of my arms at night, you know. I was real scared that... I didn't pray to him, something was going to happen when I woke up. So I always prayed to God, and it didn't mean nothing because I was just saying anything I could, you know, just anything. Uh, and uh, so finally, I realized that uh, there, there's prayers for everything, and that uh, um, you can pray, you know, if you want help. And I learned this when I went to my first Alanine meeting. Um, because when I, when I used to pray, I used to ask, I used to tell God, do this and do that. Do this. Get my mother sober. I don't care how you do it. Just do it, you know. And, and they finally, they told me that you have to pray for God's guidance and understanding and his will for the day. And I thought these guys were nuts, you know. Because I figured, well, if God wants to do it, he'll do it, you know. So I'll tell him to do it. And if he wants to do it, let him do it. And then my sponsor told me that uh, uh, God either t God gives you answers. He either opens one door, which is He'll say no, and He'll open another door for you, or He'll tell you wait or maybe. 
I go, okay, fine, you know, I believe you. <laughs> Actually, I didn't, you know. And uh, I went back to the, then I, I was going to Alan on Altine at this time, and I didn't know much about Altine, but I gave a good story at the meetings, you know. I used to sit and talk at the meetings for hours, you know. And they thought, man, she's a great Altine, but actually I wasn't practicing anything at home. Um, and finally it sunk into me why, why I was praying for guidance, because God helps those who help themselves. And if you sit on, the, if you pray just for someone to tie your shoe, you know, you know how to tie your shoe, and you're just sitting there and you say, God, tie my shoe. What he'll do is he'll give you the knowledge to tie your shoe, but he won't tie it for you. And uh, this is what I've learned. Uh, you have to, if you want something done, you can have to do it yourself, but you need help. Um, the fourth four step helped me a lot, too, um, on the inventory part. And I took it when I was in Altine about seven months. And this is the first time I took it. And the reason I took it was because in Altine, you know, they tell you, you know, if you follow the steps, everything will work out right. Well, I was following the steps, and I was determined to make my mother change. But <laughs> she wouldn't change for me. And finally, one night, I, I sat down and I decided, now why isn't my mother changing? I'm working everything they tell me, you know? And finally, it dawned on me that if you want something changed, you have to change it yourself. So I find out that it was me that had to change. So I decided, okay, I'll try it, you know? So... But I wasn't going to try it right now, you know. I really wanted to get an argument before I tried it, you know, get it worthwhile. <laughs> so, so I went to my alchemy and I told them, I finally determined what I was doing wrong. And they go, what? I go, I'm trying to change my mother. And they go, we've been trying to tell you this, but you wouldn't listen, you know. I go, oh, you know. And so I went home the next night and I tried it, you know. And my first week was a success, you know. No argument. I go, wow, you know. So I went back and I was all excited and I told the kids, hey, I didn't fight with my mom. And they go, oh, that's nice. They didn't give me a pat in the back or a handshake or nothing. I was depressed. <laughs> so then the next night I had a fight with my mom and I go, oh, it's a useless cause. You know, I may as well give up. And uh, so then, so I went back and I told them, oh, I had a fight with my mom. And they go, oh, that's okay, you know. What do you want me to do about it, you know? <laughs> They didn't even give me a slap in the face, you know. They didn't do nothing. And so um, then I decided, well, people change, so I have to change. So a couple weeks later, I tried it again, and, and, it, and I really tried hard. But uh, this time, I didn't try to work. You know that yellow sheet you get, you know, that gives you all the defects of characters? I didn't try to work all of them at once. I tried to one at a time. And this worked out, man, because... Um, first time I tried it to change myself, I worked the whole sheet in one day, you know? <laughs> well, this was great, you know, I was really promoting fast. Um, but then, uh, then I realized, you know, the next day, and I was depressed because I didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> so I decided, you know, I have to work one at a time, you know? And this is how I, I accomplish most of my good my good defects now I have. And uh, you, it's just like working one day at a time. You can't work a week. You've got to work a day at a time. And if you can't work the day at a time, you've got to break it down to minutes and hours. And uh, this is how I found the fourth step. I couldn't work, you know, all of them at once. I had to work them one at a time. Um, uh, this is coming to recovery. The uh, title is Working Together for Recovery. 
This coincides with United We Stand, Divided We Fall. And um, this means to me, like, if a family isn't united, it's going to divide and it's going to fall. And unless you have a family that is united with happiness and love and uh, trust in go a God or a higher power, the family will stick together. Now, if you were to walk down the street and you were to ask somebody a question like, what do you think about so-and-so? You're going to have about ten different answers. And this is even true at home. Every person in your family is an individual, and they have to be treated like that. You just can't treat one like that and treat everyone by the same. And if you try to treat everyone as an individual and still try to believe in what you believe in and have happiness, the family will be united, and it will be a happy family. Now, in Altine, I've really gained a strong character, and I'm really grateful for this because before I came to Altine, as I told you, I was a snob, and I wouldn't talk to anyone that was a grease or was a yippie or a hippie or a long-haired weirdo or whatever you call them. I was only going to talk to France, and this was it. And uh, if they weren't cool and if they weren't good-looking, I didn't have no part in them. And if I think I've got a cool friend and you know, I hang around with them, and someone told me they was a dip, I believe them, and I drop them, you know. And uh, I believe anything anyone ever told me, you know, so I could get a friendship there. And uh, I realized that I have my own opinion, and if I believe in it, it should be, it should be good enough for myself, and I shouldn't have to worry about what other people think. And this is why I'm up here. If you don't like what I'm saying, you either have an open mind or use earplugs. <laughs> Now, the first step, as I told you, when I became in here, I thought I was, a prom I was promoted, you know, uh, because I didn't need it. Well, I soon realized that the first step is very important, not just for alcohol, but for your daily routine. Daily, um, daily routine, that's it. <laughs> now, where it says, uh, I'm, we, uh, I admit that I am powerless over my alcoholic, and I can't do anything about it. What I have done is I am powerless over such and so, and that I admit that I can't do anything about it. Now, this has really come in handy because if you, you think about it, you know, you don't like the way your mother's acting, you know, and you're going to change her. You know you can't. She doesn't have to be an alcoholic. She doesn't even have to, she doesn't have to even, you know, she can be just a regular, uh, normal person. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> But if, if you put it in there, you know, I have to accept the things I cannot change. This is where the serenity prayer comes in. It comes in right in the first step. Um, I don't know how much time I got left, but I hope it isn't much. I'm going to get nervous now. But I want to close with one of my favorite uh, poems. Poet here. Uh-huh. Okay. I got up early one morning, and I rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish I didn't have time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me, and heavier came each test. Why doesn't God help me, I wonder? He answered, you never asked. I tried to come into God's presence. I used my keys and blocks. God gently and lovingly chided, Why, child, don't you knock? I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day just toiled on, gray and bleak. I wonder why God doesn't show me 
He said, you didn't seek. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to attain to pray. I want to thank you for listening to me, and I hope you all... One of you has got a message out of mine, and uh, God bless you. Thank you, Kay. Can you hear? After listening to Kay, I believe is her name. Yeah. Kale? Kathy. Kathy. I'm convinced that the greatest gift you can give your children is this program. I also want to tell you a good way to close this generation gap or communication gap is to place your children in the Alateen program. And in addition to that, you as adults want to learn, become a sponsor, and then you will have a lot to be thankful for. Now we will hear what the AA Fellowship has done for Shirley with her threefold disease. Shirley? of a mic either. <laughs> I didn't know I had a pair of comedians. <laughs> I guess I'm the sober one in the bunch. <laughs> I had a speech written, and uh, they asked for a, a sort of a write-up, and I wrote one, but I have never re- used a written speech in my life. I sort of talk off the cuff, and it's rather difficult, and now I wish I was going to use my written copy. They made it look real simple. But I am a non-practicing alcoholic, which means I was an alcoholic and I was sober yesterday and I shall be sober today and tomorrow I don't worry about I only have today I've got a buddy sitting back out there and every time I say I'm a non-practicing alcoholic he says he has a recovering alcoholic and I was going to look up this word recovery and I started to in a dictionary at the library when I was getting some books and it had 15 pages on it and I said that's too much to copy down so mentally I decided to me recovery is getting back something you lost And that is what I have gotten back. I have gotten back my self-respect. I have gotten back my God, and I have gotten back my family. So to me, that is recovery. I came into this program in 1962, a very sad, unhappy person. To me, when I came to the doors of AA, I was an absolute nothing. I had no faith. I had no love. I had no friends. I was filled with hate, and I hated me very much. And I didn't know how to live, and I didn't know how to die. And I knew I had to do something, and I didn't know what. And I'm one of those that believe that I was born an alcoholic. From the first drink, I was an alcoholic. I later found out through this program why, because I had all the things that go along to make up an alcoholic. The immaturity, the ego, the false pride, the terrific IQ. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I once heard that... Uh, Genius and alcoholism, or genius and sanity, is a very fine line. And that suited me fine because, of course, I was a genius. Um, My very first drink I received from my father when I was about three years old, and that was also my first drunk. Uh, At that time, I was very shy, very backward, and all I remember saying, Daddy, can I have a little bit more? And my father, engrossed in conversation with a buddy, 
kept giving Shirley a little bit more until Shirley passed out. And I think back over my childhood, and although I never had a lot to drink, I know I was never satisfied with one. If at a party, an anniversary, Christmas, New Year's, if my father was serving anything and he said I could have one, I mentally wondered immediately, was he going to allow me another? So you see, I was never satisfied with one drink. And I think back to the fact that I never drank because uh, of the effect. I always drank because I liked it. And name it, I liked it. And name it, I drank it. And I sure didn't make want it mixed up with ice water or anything else that went along with it. If I was going to drink whiskey, I wanted to taste whiskey. I didn't want water and ice cubes. Later on, of course, I used to tell my husband the reason I fell down, there was too many ice cubes in that drink. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, Jim and I got married quite young, and when I got married, uh, I was drinking, but not much. Uh, family drinking social drinking. I did do some of that. Um, later on, I didn't appreciate it because uh, the only drink, way I drank socially later on was if, if you have a drink, so shall I. And uh, <laughs> then again, <laughs> later on in my drinking, I used to say I never drank unless I was mad, sad, or glad, never alone, or unless I was in company. That covered everything. Um, however, this is a disease and I found a very progressive disease. I started out drinking because I liked it, and towards the end of my drinking, I drank because I had to, and later on, I drank because it was the only way I could survive or cope with living. Um, today, I'm grateful I'm an alcoholic. I've had people say to me, you can't possibly mean that, and I definitely mean that. I am very grateful I'm an alcoholic and a sober alcoholic. I lived 15 years of pure heck. I put my family through an awful mess, too, um, not knowing what was wrong with me. You see, it isn't just a drinking problem. It's a thinking problem and a living problem. And I had never learned how to live, and I had never learned how to think. I just learned how to drink. We were married young, and he went into service, and he went overseas. And while he was overseas, I drank quite heavily with his mother and father. I figured that was the way you enjoyed life. What else did you do in the evening? You went out and drank. I drank underage and got served in many places. And then again, in many places that they asked for proof of age, we automatically walked out highly insulted because I never carried proof. And naturally, at 18, they weren't supposed to serve me anyway. But uh, Jim came back from overseas. And after being married almost five years by this time, we started out to live what we thought was going to be a normal, happy life. In the first couple of years, we were supremely happy. We went in for our first child. He was born when we were married almost six years. And a couple of years later, we went in for the next one. And things were fine. But in that brief gap, things had started to change. I had done just enough drinking that I liked to drink by this time. Um, I thought anything was the time to drink, company or anything else, whether we could afford it or not. And he was never really much of a drinker. He was truly a party pooper. <laughs> However, uh, it wasn't until number three child came along, and I think, um, no, I think, believe I was pregnant for number two child when we had our first argument over alcohol. We had been out drinking in the afternoon, and I was very much pregnant, about eight months, I believe. 
And we came home, and either he wanted to go back, and I said no, or I wanted to go back, and he said no. I like to think it's the first, but I choose to feel now it must have been the latter. However, I uh, got very angry. My temper by this time was changing, and I threw a very prized sugar bowl at him. It belonged to my mother, and my mother was dead. And I prized the sugar bowl, and I threw it at him with tremendous heft, and I missed him completely, and I shattered my sugar bowl, and I cried my heart out. If I'd have hit him, I probably would have killed him because I hit it, uh, hit the door dead on and missed him by an inch. Um, I had started to change. We had three children, and we moved over the river because I'm born a Canuck. I was born in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. And we moved over the river, and my life started to change. And the reason I tell my story this way is because uh, for people who do not understand or people who haven't reached that point, I would like to prove how your thinking changes, how your drinking changes, how this di disease of alcoholism does progress uh, in spite of us. Uh, we moved over the river, and in Canada, you see, you didn't buy uh, beer at a grocery store or anything like this. You got beer from a brewer's retail, whiskey from a liquor shop, and wine from a wine shop. And we lived in the outskirts of Detroit a very short time when I ordered groceries one day and discovered I could order six bottles of beer with my groceries. And I thought, this is fabulous. Why haven't they ever done this in Canada? I thought this was a big step forward. You see, I didn't drive. And uh, I wouldn't have dreamed of walking into a brewer's retail or, or a grocery store and buying beer at this time, so I ordered some over the phone. Shortly after that, I bought a bottle of wine over the phone. I thought, this is tremendous. Isn't this amazing? We're so backward in Canada. <laughs> well, inside of a year, I was hiding just a little bit of my wine. I was buying two bottles of wine when I only needed one. We were having no fights, no arguments. Things were getting along beautifully. Uh, but I was changing. A year later, we moved into a big apartment upstairs, and we adopted a little girl, and this made us four children, and we thought our family was set and everything was fine. And then Jim started looking at the cases of beer, and he'd say, uh, my goodness, that case went down fast. And I'd say, oh, no. And then come a Monday, you see, every Friday I ordered our stock for the weekend, our stock. <laughs> um, Monday, I'd say to him, um, I think it's time I ordered a case of beer and maybe a bottle of wine. And he'd say, what do you want a case of beer for? And I said, well, we're all out. And he'd say, where did it go? And I said, we drank it. He said, what do you mean we drank it? I only had one. And I said, well, good heavens, this is Monday. That was Friday. How long do you want a case of beer to last? And so by Tuesday, I would manage to buy another case of beer and I'd buy that extra bottle of wine. And about this time, we weren't too far from a, a little shop that sold liquor. So occasionally I would pick up a little pint of liquor. Now, we always had something on hand for company. And uh, I always found that while I was drinking some in the living room or the dining room, I was also drinking some in the kitchen. I understand social drinkers don't do this, but I thought this is the way you drank. Um, we moved again. And this time I know that I was well into practicing alcoholism. I was drinking earlier. I was drinking often. I was drinking longer. And we bought a house at night. <laughs> I didn't know people didn't do that, but we did. And um, I looked at it and looked just great. And uh, we signed the papers, and we moved in a few days later. And this tremendous house I saw at night, and I thought, this can't be the same house. The house I saw had beautifully waxed floors, and the decor looked very nice. 
and the yard was supposed to have grass. Well, in the middle of the day, I looked at this house, and the floors were black and had an inch of wax on them. And somebody had painted the living room two walls dark red and two dark green. <laughs> well, that wasn't too bad, but I happened to take a look at my backyard, and we had grass, I think three sticks of it. <laughs> well, uh, this house I knew was going to cause us trouble because we moved in on a Friday. And my mother, <laughs> my mother, uh, using all the old-fashioned Canadian saying, always said, Friday, flit, short, sit. So I knew I was in for trouble. And we had our first argument in that home that first night because I stopped for groceries. Now, I understood that when you stopped for groceries, you always bought something to drink. I mean, I did. And I bought a few beers. And I came in with the groceries and the few beers. And Jim looked at the few beers and said, what are they for? And I said, we just moved in. I thought we'd celebrate. He said, you had two this afternoon. <laughs> you see what I was up against all those years? If I had two in the afternoon, <laughs> that should have done me. Well, we had our first big argument, and we went to bed not talking. Now, this had never happened to us before, and by this time we had been married, oh, I'd say about nine years. Um, we lived in this home for maybe a year and a half, and I, my drinking progressed. I started hiding it uh, any place I could, and of course, he mentioned we started to meet a few policemen. And uh, I never forget one time I had... Uh, been drinking and he immediately accused me of being drunk and I got very angry and I think we had a fight I really don't remember of course when I first came here I told you I never had a blackout I never had a hangover and I never got sick I don't remember them but apparently uh, I had them however somebody called the police and they said why do you let her drink and my husband said I don't allow her to drink I don't know how she's drinking and he said but I know she's got a supply and we can't find it and I said, I haven't got any, you know. And um, the first thing you know, if those police weren't out in my garage, barreling down into an old trunk I had in the garage, and if they didn't find it, right at the bottom of my trunk. And they took it with them. <laughs> well, <clears throat> needless to say, I was progressing. The fights were getting worse. The language was changing. Jim was shutting windows, and I was opening them. Um... <laughs> I was beginning to swallow things because uh, I wanted. I was beginning to want out. I tried suicide once about this time. I'm not sure really what happened or how, but it happened. And then, most disastrous of all, I found out I was pregnant for number five. Now, this just about shot me because I figured my family was all cut and dried. I had four children, three girls and a boy, and I was perfectly content. So the spring of that year marked the complete turning point in my drinking and I was not getting better. Uh, that spring of the year, I took two little girls in for tonsillectomies and uh, came out uh, on my wedding anniversary, in fact, and I was eight months pregnant, and I got home, and being my wedding anniversary and having spent the whole day in the hospital, I was sure we would celebrate, and I come home, and I said, gee, didn't you buy anything to celebrate with? And he said, celebrate? And I said, well, it's our wedding anniversary. He said, let's get the children from across the street. They've had them all day long. And this was my wedding anniversary, and I was very disgusted and upset. Well, needless to say, Tom was born a few weeks later. And then that summer, one of my children, due to my drinking, fell into a revolving fan. Uh, it was very, very hot. And I'd become a very coarse, rough, mean mother and loaded whenever I could get hold of it. 
because I had to drink by this time. I didn't know how else to survive. I didn't want to be like this. I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know what. And I didn't know my problem was alcohol. However, it was a hot, hot day, and I set the fan on the floor, and I said to the children, stay outside. Children aren't supposed to run in the home, you know. They belong in the backyard. And my little girl was running through the house and fell into the revolving fan. How I got her to the hospital, I still don't know. But they kept her an hour and a half on the operating table, and they managed to save her hand. It was cut clear across. About a month and a half later, another little girl was acting funny, and I finally said, I've got to take her to the doctor. And deep within me, I knew what was wrong, but I was having an awful time accepting it. But finally, I took her to the doctor, and my worst fears were realized. It was polio. And so within three weeks, she was 90% paralyzed and in Herman Kiefer Hospital. That's one of our big hospitals up in Detroit. Well, poor me, I was in a fix. I had a baby, I had a little girl in the hospital, and then, this was in August, and in the September, my son playing football fractured his skull against the steel post, and they put him in another hospital. Now, I was in pretty sad shape. I had a lot to carry, you know, and poor me. And my whole sob story for several months was, poor me, my children are sick. Poor me, my husband's angry with me. Poor me, my husband's picking at my drinking. I don't remember ever saying, my poor children or my poor husband. It was poor me. Well, thanks to the grace of God, and not through any help of mine, my children came through. My little girl today has the use of her hand as, as waiting to get her license as a beautician. My son is married and has a fine little boy, two years old. My other daughter is married, and you'd never know that she had polio. Uh, she has a little son almost a year old. Well, time sped on, and we left this home of heartaches and heartbreaks and moved into another home for six months, stayed there, and there was no problem drinking here, really. I had too far to walk. <laughs> and also, he wasn't allowing me too much money. By this time, I had learned how to copy his name beautifully, and it was best to keep all checks hidden, because if he left one out, I found it. And if he left the checkbook out, I found it, too. And this presented a real problem for him because <clears throat> if I happened to sign a few with his name, mine were going through and they were bouncing his. So we <laughs> he found it was much simpler just to take my name off the checking account. We moved again into a home in East Detroit, and we lived there just a few weeks, and we thought everything was now fine. Our family was doing fine, and we had five children by this time. Everything was great. And then my husband asked my son to go and get some cold pop. And my son said, where would I go? And he said, down the street a block and a half and across, and you'll find a nice little pop store. A beer store, I believe, is how he put it. And I thought to myself, oh. I didn't say anything. And a little while later, my son came back with the pop. And so Monday morning, bright and early, I got my housework done very early, and I took a walk. And a block and a half down and across the street was a little beer store. And Lou and I became great friends. She realized my husband was rather hard to live with because I told her. <laughs> <clears throat> I found myself in this area very quickly. I found myself two or three little beer stores in a triangle. And naturally, you didn't visit the same one twice a day unless you were forced to. And uh, they all knew what kind of a husband I had because uh, he didn't like to drink and therefore he didn't want me to drink. And I had heard of bar bills when I came into the program, and I thought, now, this is the most disgusting thing I ever heard of, imagining men with bar bills. 
uh, I had little beer store bills. And I paid them every time I got my grocery money. Well, as you can see, I was progressing. About this time, I tried suicide again. I tried once to put myself in a mental hospital because I wanted out. I wanted away. I knew if I'd get myself into a, uh, an institution of some kind, but this time I was sick. And I knew that if I get into an institution, he would no longer hurt me and I could no longer hurt him. And I was truly unhappy. Things went on like this perhaps a little over a year. And uh, by this time, my youngest was about five and a half years old. And on a February afternoon in the middle of the day, on the second pint of vodka and an inch and a half thick steak, see, I ate at funny times, uh, it suddenly dawned on me there was something wrong with the way I drank. And I called a doctor, and he said, yes, you're an alcoholic. I've had it on my books for two years. I went to see him, and when I talked to him, he agreed with me. He agreed I was an alcoholic, and I was insulted. <laughs> I thought he should have said, no, there's something else wrong with you, but he said, no, you're an alcoholic. Um, he suggested AA to me, too, and I thought, well, this is the worst. How bad can you get? Imagine telling me to go to AA. However, I got home, and I left my husband this long note. He contacted the doctor, and they contacted AA. And when these two gals turned up that afternoon, for the first time I realized there might be a little bit of hope for me, because there was something wrong with me. And I liked the idea of maybe being an alcoholic if I could look like these girls did in a few years. And then we went to our first open meeting. And as Jim said in his talk, we were most assured that all our problems would clear up. If I didn't drink, that was our only problem. Well, I stayed with the program for about three months, and I took the 13th step. And um, <laughs> this, this was very normal because, you see, on a Thursday morning, I wanted to make a meeting. And I had learned early in this program that we were super sensitive. You treated us with kid gloves. You didn't give us orders. You asked us. As my husband left for work, he broke all the rules. <laughs> and at 10 o'clock, I wanted to make a meeting for 10.30. Well, at 10.15, I was at a little liquor store that I don't remember ever being at before, buying myself a pint of vodka, and I got home, knowing that nobody in that house really wanted me to go to a meeting at 10.30. Uh, I was sober about a year and a half when it came to me where that meeting was. The meeting for 10.30 was approximately six blocks from the little liquor uh, drugstore that I had bought my liquor at at 10.15. And so today I realized at that time I didn't really want to quit drinking. And when I came here, I didn't want to quit drinking. I wanted my husband to like me, my children to like me. I wanted to be happy again, but I didn't know how to survive without drinking. And I didn't hear half of the things that the people told me. I listened only to the things that I wanted to hear. And this was the wrong way to go about it. I wasn't the least bit honest when I came here. I admitted I was an alcoholic, but I didn't accept it. However, I battled this program for a year and a half, all in the same way, and I kept coming back. I did realize early in the program the door swung both ways. I did learn that if I fell off, they would take me back. It was the first place in the world that I was ever accepted and, and never dejected or rejected. I was accepted for the fact that I was surely, and I said I had a problem. Whether I believed it or not, I said I had a problem, and I was accepted. And here I did believe people were honest. I could see the faith in their eyes. I could see the truth in their eyes. I couldn't understand this God bit, but I knew here was honesty, and I knew they had something. And I did keep coming back. And finally, when I came back the last time, I came back by myself and for myself. And I came back without a sponsor.
In fact, after I was sober five years, I finally said to a gal in our group, I'm going to ask you a funny thing. And she said, what? I said, I've run into some problems. And I said, I think it's time I had a sponsor. Would you like to be my sponsor? And she said, yes, I would. And she said, isn't this wonderful? One of my babies is finally sober five years. (laughs) So anyway, I came back by myself, and I got in with both feet. The key to this program is honesty and action and willing. And the how of the program, the open mind. And I think the S, I used to say they should make that shows or hows for sincerity. I saw these people and I heard them talking about God and I thought, he'll never help me. Uh, He has no further use for me. But when they kept saying, if you don't believe it, try it. And somewhere along the line, I started to pray. And somewhere along the line, that little bit of faith came. And so today, I am a grateful alcoholic. Grateful I'm sober and grateful I found a God here that was never any place else. I'm not ready to go back to church, but someday I would like to. Um, How much time do I have? (laughs) Uh, I'd like to take a very brief, a short briefing on the 12 steps. Uh, Admitted I was powerless over alcohol, and I am, and my life is still completely unmanageable. I have no recourse over what I am going to do today or what is going to happen to me today. Nothing at all. I have hopes for today but I hope that whatever I do will be the right thing. And to believe a power could restore me, not would, could, can, will, or anything else, could restore me to sanity. And if I stay sober long enough, I shall become sane. Today I have enough sanity that I can accept the fact that I can stay sober or I can get drunk today. It's my choice. I can stay sober or get drunk. It's my choice. A higher power I've found here, you know, today is the beginning of the rest of my life. And today is the only day I have. And so, therefore, it's the only day I can change, the only day I can stay sober, and the only day that I can turn my will and my life over the care of God as I understand him. This is my only day. And having broken this third step down this way, it makes my life a lot simpler. I found by asking God every morning to be able to help one person today, I've been much happier the last few months, and as part of my morning prayer, let me be able to help one person today. Whether alcoholic or non-alcoholic, it doesn't matter. And I find each day I'm managing to help just one person in very simple ways, but it makes me feel good. To make a searching and fearless moral inventory, a lot of people say they took the step long before they come to AA. I didn't. When I came here, all I know is I couldn't stop drinking and I was unhappy. And today I realize if I allow my thinking to become such, I will get drunk. And when I drink, I behave another way. Uh, The fifth step I've never taken, not in its entirety with one single person, but I've taken it at an open talk around the table and with a new person and helping someone else take their fifth step. And it says the exact nature of our wrongs, not our exact wrongs. And so I con myself into leaving it the simple way. To have God entirely ready to move our defects of character and humbly remove our shortcomings, Bill has written that shortcomings and, def- and uh, defects of character are one and the same thing, but they have differentiated it so that it wouldn't be repetitious. And I am ready, and I am willing, and I do believe that God in his own time, and when I am willing and ready to accept the removal of my defects of character the way they were offered to me, he will remove them, and it's that simple. I do a lot of praying today, and I pray for all sorts of things, and I can pray for anything today, and maybe I have the gimmies. Mainly I pray for help and guidance to be a better wife, a better mother, a better woman, and a better member of AA. This is all I want today. 
I pray for want power to stay sober, not willpower. Willpower never did a thing for me. I need want power. On the eighth step, I've never made a list for people, and I don't intend to for a long time. There are too many people that I will never see again. And so I cover this with the ninth step by making daily amends to me first, then to my family. And I do believe that if I am to help somebody or, or make an amend to somebody, God will put me in the position to make that amend. By trying to do one good deed each day removes one bad deed in the past that I can't do a thing about verbally or personally. And so this is another way I work these two steps. And the tenth step is the step that keeps me sober. This is the today step. This is the only day I can do anything, the only day that I can apologize, the only day that I can change, the only day I can try to be a better person. And so today I live by the tenth step, today. And the eleventh step is thought through prayer and meditation, and meditation is any good thought. I used to say, gee, I don't know how to pray, and I thought meditation was prayer. Well, in one way it is. But the word God is only the word good with one O removed, and any good thought is a form of prayer. And so today I can meditate or prayer at random, morning, late at night, in the middle of the day. If anything troubles me, I can stop and ask guidance and help and say a little prayer. I could never pray before. I didn't know how to. I use my own language, but it works out, and I'm happy. And having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I think the fact the day that I can think, this is a spiritual awakening, the fact that I am sober, the fact today that I can smile and laugh, and these two comedians are up here, <laughs> uh, this is wonderful. You know, for a good many years, we didn't laugh in my home, no laughter at all. And I certainly couldn't have laughed at some of the things Catherine said a few years ago. She'd have been over my knee. <laughs> but today I can laugh. Because you see, today I know that I am not perfect. And Kathy's not perfect, and neither are any of my children. But we are all trying. We're all trying to do the same thing, live a decent way of life, trying to be honest and asking God for his help and guidance. And it's good to laugh. And it's a spiritual awakening to be able to laugh at me. Not at you, but at me. And I could never laugh at me before. To carry the message, this is all I hope to ever be able to do, be able to help somebody else stay sober. I would like, because I know I don't have too much time left, but I spent several months preparing what I call the triple alphabet of AA. Um, I call it my AA alphabet and triplicate. A stands for AA Elanon Alateen, a threefold family affair. B is for belief, a beautiful way of life, balance instead of boredom. C is for compromise, complacent, and change. I must not compromise. I cannot become complacent, and I must change. D is for desire, decision, and determination. E is for easy does it, everyday living, an end to drinking. F is for faith, a future, and freedom from fear. G is for God as I now understand him, grateful heart, and good friends. H is for happiness, hope, and for me, help. I is for identity, I had none. Instant insanity if I drink, involved with the program and others, not isolated. J is for joy, justify or judge no more, and juvenile I once was. K is for the key to living and loving, kindness and knowledge. L is for love, laughter, and a liberty from alcohol. M is for meetings, miracles, and musts, not should do. N is for a new way of life, no longer a nonentity, negative thinking under control. O is for open-minded, 
optimism, and obligations. P is for prayer, patience, and peace of mind. Q for, means quit for, and stay quit, quality not quantity, quotations we learn to live by. R is for responsibility, reality, and recovery. S is for serenity, security, and sobriety is sanity. T is for tolerance, truth, and total abstinence. U is for unity, unbiasedness, and usefulness. V is for vulnerable, if not vigilant, a value change, and volunteering. W is for want power to stay sober, willingness, and wisdom. X stands for Zebic, which stands for three, a physical, mental, spiritual disease, a triangle. God, me, and AA, a triangle. Unity, service, recovery, a triangle. Y is for yardstick, the 12 steps to go by. Yoke that only AA can break. And you, because you are important to yourself. Z is for zealousness and enthusiasm. The zenith of our lives. The zero hour. The time is now. And last but not least, remember that I am responsible when anyone anywhere reaches out for help. I want the hand of AA to be there. And for that, I am responsible. Because it is not a drinking problem, but a living problem. And I must adapt my 12-step myself to the 12 steps of AA, and not the 12 steps of AA to me. And so, God grant me the ability to thank you every day for all the things you've given me in work, in love, in play. And help me to remember as I go along my way that all the things you've given me were given through AA. And I thank you very much. Thank you, Shirley, for that very inspiring talk.